Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Tonight is the last night in our series on Shanti Deva's text, the Bodhisattva Charyavatara, a guide to a Bodhisattva's way of life. It's gone on for months, um, and uh, the ninth chapter is—it's impossible. I mean, did anybody try reading it? You, you have to know so much about Indian philosophy in order even just to get through one page of it. And it's the strangest thing because the whole time you've had this passionate uh, author, Shanti Deva, uh, talking brilliantly with so much clarity about how the most important thing you can do with your life is have clarity uh, to serve all beings. And just, there were some beautiful, beautiful chapters, especially on patience, I thought. Um, And then you hit chapter nine, and what happened? I mean, it's doubtful to my mind that Shantideva had anything to do with chapter nine. (laughs) Um, So if you haven't read it, um, which I'm going to assume most of you haven't, uh, skip it. Uh, All weekend I was teaching in Quebec in the eastern townships and uh, every time I had some free time it started haunting me. How on earth am I going to give a talk on chapter 9? So I'm going to give a talk on chapter 9 in one minute. (laughs) So here's how it goes. Um, There are two main wings in Buddhist practice. The one wing is emptiness and the other wing is compassion. And they really rely on one another. I always thought if Center of Gravity ever made t-shirts, they would say emptiness, colon, compassion. Not colon. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Emptiness and compassion are synonymous. Um, And when emptiness and compassion, like two wings are working together, uh, in the Buddhist tradition, this is called wisdom. And the last chapter of Shantideva is called wisdom because it's a thorough analysis of the subjects, emptiness, compassion, mindfulness, and the self. 
And what happens is these different schools are pitted one against the other. The first school is the school of ordinary people. And the basic idea is that there's these ordinary people, maybe you've seen them, they walk around, they think their lives are real, they buy things, they sell things, they marry each other, they have babies, they die. And they think the whole time that their life is, is real. And then you have another school, which is the very early uh, school of Buddhist followers called the Abhidharma school, or in Pali, the Abhidhamma. And they look at human beings and they say, human beings think they're real, but really, on analysis, they're made up of the five skandhas and the 18 datus and everything's changing and they have a conception that they're real, but with a little bit of contemplation, they can start to experience themselves as impermanent and interdependent and so on. And then there's a third school, which is the Yogacara school, which is, there, which is often called the mind-only school. And their perspective is, well, yeah, the Abhidharma school is absolutely right. That human beings are made up of all these different components, which are all changing. Um, but also, those components that are changing are also not real in the way you think they're real. And the only thing that's real is mind. The only thing that's real is consciousness. And that's why they're called the mind-only school. Which, if you take really far, is like saying, you know, there is nothing out there in the world. Everything is only a representation in your brain. And actually, some philosophers still think that, believe it or not. And then the fourth school is the Madhyamaka school, which in Tibetan Buddhism is like at the top. And the Madhyamaka school, the middle way school, is the school of you know emptiness par excellence. And what they're saying is the mind and consciousness, well, that too is also empty. That too also does not exist the way you think it exists. And then once in a while in the argument, there are these other schools, like they bring in the Sankhya school and different schools, and they all debate with Shantideva about, and then it's divided into, into topics. So they have a debate about mindfulness, debate about the self, a debate about emptiness, um, a little bit about compassion. So I'll save you the trouble. It's really interesting. I'm sure when scholars say that it's written in the finest Sanskrit and it's a poem, I'm sure to someone it's poetry. <laughs> but to read it is really, really difficult. And if you're following the Stephen Batchelor version, it's even worse. Because Stephen Batchelor doesn't just translate it, he explains the background of each school, and it's just, it's just a disaster. Um, so, I thought maybe it would be better just to scrap it and instead of talking about how four different schools understand mindfulness, emptiness, and the self, that we could talk instead about how four different kinds of personalities experience emptiness, the self, and mindfulness. Because that interests me more, and it would take a lot less time. <laughs> um, and, and also, I didn't say it, but I'm so happy Kelly's here. <laughs> so well, welcome back. Thank you. Uh, you know, 
Just the fact that you're here is a big deal. Congratulations on the birth of your baby. Thank you. You too. And when you weren't here one night, I I did announce that your baby was born and also that it was the most beautiful baby on Facebook. (laughs) (laughs) Only on Facebook. Yeah, only on Facebook. Well, because what happens is, you know, if you have some of my friends, when you look at your news feed, all you see is baby, babies right now. And then, so there'd be all these babies, and then you'd see Kelly's baby, and it was like, wow, this is the most beautiful baby ever. <laughs> so I'd say to Karina, what are they using, Instagram or what? And she'd say, no, 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 it is. it's the most beautiful baby. <laughs> So I thought that the four uh, characters that we can deal with tonight are um, borderline personalities, uh, schizoid personalities, uh, depression, and narcissism. Because I think these are, you know, four categories uh, that we see in people's lives all the time. And I think everybody here knows that I could spend a month critiquing each of those categories. Um, When I was young, um, I really thought that I would either become a monk or I would become a psychiatrist. Because when I was young, uh, so much of what I learned about practice was from my uncle, who was schizophrenic, and lived his whole whole life in, in, at 999 Queen, which now is called the Family Center. Before, it used to just be called 999. <laughs> um, and, uh, and also, I have so much mental illness in my family. A- everywhere you look in my family, they're either heart attacks or mental illness. That's it, really. <laughs> um, and uh, but but then when I started studying psychology, I I was so angry with I didn't even realize how angry I was with the psychiatric establishment. I was convinced that every doctor in any mental health hospital was just a salesperson for pharmaceutical companies, and maybe because I was witness to what was happening at that hospital in the late 70s and in the early 80s, which to me seemed like just experimenting with drugs. And um, uh, this wasn't a time where there was a lot of group work done or, you know, this kind of thing at that, at that particular location. Um, so anyways, uh, I want to say before we start tonight that all of these categories are really helpful for orienting us sometimes to certain patterns in the personality. Um, And everybody exists in the spectrum of each one of these categories. We all do. And at the same time, these categories are hugely problematic and sometimes can really be used in ways that are very exploitive. So, there you go. Um, And there's only one book that I ever read when I want to understand how different personalities work when they're on the edge of a spectrum. 
And that's this wonderful book by Nancy McWilliams called Psychoanalytic Diagnosis. I I think her writing is so sensitive and spot on. Um, And uh, if anybody wants to follow up on some of the definitions I'm going to use tonight, uh, this book is really uh, sensitive and fantastic. And it's like $100 or something. Um, At the beginning of class tonight, I reminded you that when you meditate it's important that you distinguish between the realm of self-consciousness and the realm of mindfulness. And maybe I have to repeat this over and over for the next few months because it's really important. And you might not even realize how important it is until you're actually testing it out in your practice. Because if I say to you, oh, are you paying attention to your feelings and your thoughts and so on, you'll of course say yes. But the tendency is that you're saying yes because you're paying attention to it, but within the frame of a self. And the teachings of mindfulness as they mature, like the teachings of emptiness, is the ability to see the non-absoluteness of things. That what you're looking at does not exist in the fixed way you think it exists. And when your practice is a little more in the self-consciousness realm, you tend to be able to see that in deeper ways, in superficial things. Uh, Not in the negative sense, but, you know, oh, this relationship is impermanent, or I'm making this argument about me, and so on. And this is really important. But as your practice starts to have more quiet and more stability in it, and your emotions are more stable then when you start meditating, you start to see deeper layers of how your psyche is organized. And you start to intuit that this self that you think exists doesn't have a bottom. And we also see the clutching in the personality to not experience the bottom dropping out. And we experience both things. So in the Buddhist view, there is an idea that there is always a subliminal tendency in the personality to fix the I. To make the I into something inherently existing. Mm -hmm. And in psychology, there is a very similar view which is that there is an unconscious ego ideal that we all uh, are building all the time. To me, they're exactly the same. That in Western psychology, uh, and this idea was really uh, um, um, articulated well by, uh, I think he was British, a psychoanalyst named Harry Guntrip. Does anybody know Harry Guntrip? I don't know what, what years. I can't remember. But we had to study him in school. And he, he, he was part of a school called Object Relations Theory and, and really talked about the ideal ego in really interesting ways. And for him, like Freud, the, the ego ideal is called a primary form of narcissism. So at the center of the personality, there's this primary vortex 
that pulls attention into the center of the personality. And this is called primary narcissism. And it builds what's called the ideal ego, the ego ideal. And we carry around an ideal of ourselves, a representation of ourselves subconsciously. And the problem with this, or the good thing about this, is it helps organize the other versions of ourselves. So we have many versions of ourselves, but they have a relationship to this ego ideal. Like that feeling when you lose yourself in a good way or a bad way, you come back to this representation, to this matrix of self that feels like it goes on in time and goes on in space. It's exactly what we see dissolve when we're meditating. Um, the problem with the ego ideal is it's constantly distorting perception. It's constantly distorting the way we're experiencing reality. And the Buddhist approach is to see the groundlessness of every distortion, one at a time, in moment-to-moment awareness. To see that they, they arise in conditions but don't have a solid ground. And this takes great skill. The fourth Zen patriarch says it in a great way. He says, The practice of bodhisattvas has emptiness as its realization. When beginning students see emptiness, this is seeing emptiness. It's not real emptiness. Those who cultivate the way and attain real emptiness do not see emptiness or non-emptiness. They have no views. Isn't that interesting? How he said it. Those who cultivate the way and attain real emptiness do not see emptiness. Right? Because you get this a lot. You know, students experience this kind of like dropping away. It happens on retreat. They come in front of you and oh my God, I, I saw the emptiness that you're... T-. So the fourth Zen patriarch is saying, well, that's actually not seeing emptiness. <laughs> that's just seeing what you're calling emptiness. But to have it drop away... That's not emptiness or non-emptiness. That's no view. No view. So you can see that when you start to intuit that at an unconscious level, the personality has to organize to maintain the ego ideal because you don't recognize yourself. It's like, do you remember in the chapter earlier where the Dalai Lama had this great commentary when he said, when your mind gets still... You, sh- you probably just want to fall asleep because your mind doesn't recognize your mind. Right? It doesn't even know what to look for, so it just goes to sleep. It's a really interesting, interesting insight. So, when we're talking about meditation at this level, there's a very deep reorganizing of the personality that's taking place. And so, there are lots of dangers. <laughs> There are lots of dangers. And it's important to know the dangers. Um, There is a friend of mine named Willoughby Britton, who I've talked about quite a bit, 
who does tremendous research on the dangers of meditation practice. She calls it the dark side. And um, uh, last year, she was invited last summer, two summers ago, to present her research to the Dalai Lama, who was very interested in her research. And so she said to the Dalai Lama, like, here's the research. She spent an afternoon explaining it all. And then she said, what do you think? Look at all the negative places that people are ending up, all these dark places, from you know, deep retreat practice. And the Dalai Lama said, I was just invited to give a blessing at a new temple in India in southern India. So I went to the uh, I went to the temple to give my blessing during the opening and while they were performing the ceremony I noticed that there was no library there. So I turned to the head uh, priest and I said, "Where is your library?" And he said, "We don't have a library." And he said, "Well, then I can't bless the temple." So this is an interesting story. Because I think what happens is, is many people, they jump into practice with no view, with no study, with no understanding of the maps of practice. So I think it's really important that we bring together, which is beyond this evening, by the way, we bring together the traditional maps of practice that the Dalai Lama is inferring here, that's in, that are in the library, um, with... Western understanding of maps of different personality structures. And I think until we do that, we're going to be applying, we're going to be applying uh, mic meditation, you know, across the board, thinking it's good for everybody, and we're going to miss people. The first kind of personality I want to talk about is the borderline personality, probably the most famous category. Um, In the borderline personality, and I know lots of you know this, what's most lacking is the ability to synthesize multiple self-representations. So we represent ourselves to the ego ideal uh, in many different ways, But the ego has to have enough resilience that it can synthesize all of these different versions of oneself. Does that that make sense? Um, So when the ego can't consolidate these different variations of itself, (coughs) the ideal ego gets fused with the split versions of the self. Okay. Yeah, so, so, so the thing that's most important to remember in borderline personality disorder is that the ego is unable to synthesize or consolidate these different versions of oneself. And what happens when it can't is the ideal ego fuses with those energies. There's no separation between them. So, it doesn't, it, so there's nothing to come back to. There's an inflexibility, there isn't a resilience, and there isn't any ability to have any distance between uh, what's, you know, cresting and and some kind of strength in the ego 
to be able to say, that's me, that's not me, this is how far I want to be from it or not, or I, wa- or I want to identify with this or I don't. It's just not there. Um, meditation practice, when done in a properly assisted way, can be a really incredible cure for borderline personality disorder in certain ranges. Because one of the core aspects of meditation practice is that it strengthens the ability to synthesize uh, different kinds of energies. Uh, Mindfulness teaches people with borderline personality how to allow conflicting images of oneself to arise without identifying with them. And this strengthens the capacity of the ideal ego to see different parts of oneself without splitting and without clinging. And this is something every person in this room is working with when they're meditating. But for someone with borderline personality, uh, this feels like life or death, really. Because the energies that can arise can be so powerful that um, they haven't developed the basics enough to be able to develop a relationship internally. There. So what that means is maybe their meditation practice is three minutes long. And their work is just learning how to pay attention to sound without identifying it. And then maybe that three-minute practice after a few months can become the basis for starting to do that work with internal split-off parts of oneself. However, if practices that focus on the emptiness of the ideal ego are taken up prematurely, there are risks that you can lose certain split-off parts. And the certain split-off parts that you can lose are the good ones, you see? So somebody who has a shaky, borderline personality goes and drops acid and then really sees the emptiness of the whole personality structure and they're not ready for it. Can, can identify with the intensity of how at the core of everything is nothing. And then there's no nothing left to ba- balance that with. And then you have some trouble, especially if that's repeated over and over again. And uh, then destructive images can take over. And really negative thoughts can take over, and this can create depersonalization or even a loss of identity in a negative sense. So that's one of the reasons why any of you who come here regularly know that I'm constantly criticizing spiritual practices that focus on getting rid of the ego. Because nowhere in the literature do we ever talk about getting rid of the ego. This is considered a really bad thing. We're, the ego is sacred, 
But practice allows us to really see its non-absoluteness in a way that's embodied. But you need a healthy functioning ego, and here's an example of it. Or example of someone who doesn't have that. So maybe I can just go through these, and then we can talk together about them. The, the next category is narcissism. Um, for the narcissist, uh, the narcissist tends to be grandiose in a pathological way. Many of them end up as American celebrity yoga teachers. <laughs> they project negative versions of themselves and their aggression onto other people. So they don't own their own negativity. And they only see it in other people. They don't own their own aggression. They only see the aggression of other people. So there is a major split inside of them. And the only way that they can heal that split is through the admiration of other people. When they feel that other people admire them, then that split, that wound, feels like it's healed temporarily, except it doesn't work. So they have to create a life where they only surround themselves with people who admire them. And you see this so much in guru culture, where the teacher surrounds themselves with yes people, who have to dig out holes under their own bodies so they're always lower than the teacher. So the mound that the teacher is built on is built from the earth that the students have dug out from under their own feet. Sorry, I, I'm a little sensitive to this. <laughs> when the narcissist senses any change or deep transformation in their meditation practice, the result is arrogance. Again, so every time there's an important shift where the heart opens, the narcissist ego comes in and, and inflates it. And inflates it. Now, I have to say, from you know, because I, I work with so many people, and, I, and I maybe everybody who's a therapist or a teacher feels this way, but the narcissist personality to me is the hardest one to work with because it's so valued in our culture, actually. And there are so many leaders in our culture with this personality that we don't even recognize it. In fact, that personality in so many careers is actually the personality that's rewarded because of its massive extroversion. And the, 
extroverted narcissist creates a culture where there's no room for the introvert and their and their aggression is projected onto the to the introvert and it's impossible teaching narcissists uh, meditation that takes into account other people like metta exchanging yourself with others so many practices that we've worked with the last few months because it doesn't get them anywhere Uh, the next personality, the next two I want to focus on in more depth. How's our time? The third personality I want to talk about is the schizoid personality. Schizoid is someone who feels emptiness as an innate quality. It makes them different from other people. Let me read to you because Nancy McWilliams can do this much better than me. By, by the way, I, I don't know if anyone here is... She, she does come to Toronto sometimes and teaches workshops, and she's a really, really good teacher. Clinical experience suggests that temperamentally, the person who becomes schizoid is hyperactive and easily overstimulated. Schizoid people often describe themselves as innately sensitive and their relatives frequently mention their having been the kind of baby who shrinks from too much light or noise or motion. It's as if the nerve endings of schizoid individuals are closer to the surface than those of the rest of us. Uh, there's lots of studies done about how some babies who seem to have this schizoid structure that can be recognized early on, when their parent comes to hug them, they get really stiff. So that when uh, warmth comes towards them, they they withdraw. Um, And of course, this can be worse if there's a poor fit in the bonding of that type and the caregiver. Um, specifically, he or she is preoccupied with avoiding the dangers of being engulfed, absorbed, distorted, taken over, or eaten up. A good example that I heard of schizoid personality is someone who in group therapy kept, so the group is sitting in a circle, kept having the fantasy that the shape of the circle was a C and them. And if they exposed their vulnerability or how they really felt, the circle would become an O and would eat them up. Um, Basically, to summarize, I'll say more, but the schizoid personality is someone who is always saying, uh, come close, I'm alone, Stay away. Um, And, you know, they're always, always trying to preserve their safety somehow. Um, The schizoid person does not experience appetitive drives as coming from within the self. Rather, the outer world feels full of consuming, distorting threats against their security 
and individuality. Effectively, one of the most striking aspects of many high-functioning individuals with schizoid dynamics is their lack of common defenses. They tend to be in touch with many emotional reactions at a level of genuineness that awes and even intimidates their acquaintances. It's common for the schizoid person to wonder how everybody else can be lying to themselves so effortlessly when the harsh facts of life are so patent. Part of the alienation from which schizoid people suffer derives from their experiences of not having their own emotional, intuitive, and sensory capacities validated because other people simply don't see what they do. The ability of a schizoid person to perceive what others disown or ignore is so natural and effortless that he or she may lack empathy for people who are less lucid, less ambivalent, less emotionally harrowing in the world of their peers. So in other words, um, their boundaries hardly exist. Of course, the far end of the schizoid personality is schizophrenia. And one interesting footnote that just occurred to me is that there's a lot of research being done right now about healing schizophrenia with food. And there's actually a diet uh, called the GAP GAP diet, GAP diet, where uh, the focus is on really strengthening the intestines, especially the small intestine, by reducing or eliminating gluten and having lots of food like uh, bone broth to make that boundary really strong. And the basic idea in working with schizophrenia and food is taking these internal membranes that are important boundaries and making them really strong. And, you know, research shows that one of the best ways to get the small intestine to be strong is no gluten, lots of broth, lots of, you know, uh, beef broth. So this is a very interesting, interesting thing. Sorry to you vegans. Uh, people who uh, the schizoid personality also always want to somehow they always want to go after boundaries. There's a really interesting quote here from an anthropologist. Cross-cultural research shows that schizophrenics generally seem to gravitate towards the path of most resistance, tending to transgress whatever customs and rules happen to be held most sacred in a given society. Thus, in deeply religious Nigeria, they are especially likely to violate religious sanctions. In Japan, to assault family members. So isn't that interesting that cross-culturally, this personality structure tends to go for transgressing uh, boundaries. Anyways, it's, it's interesting, and you know, I, I want to spend the whole evening on this, but... Um, one of the benefits of meditation practice within a certain spectrum of schizoid personality is that meditation can really teach you how to trust yourself. 
it really teaches you how to trust boundaries and build boundaries within oneself. And uh, almost all of the young people that I've ever worked with as a meditation teacher have been sent to me by their parents (laughs) because their parents think they're schizophrenic. I can't believe how often this happens. A young person arrives at the door and I say, you know, we talk. My parents are making me come here. Why? Because I'm schizophrenic. So um, the danger of meditation for somebody who has a schizoid personality is believing that one has no feelings. Or that, or the fact that things are impermanent means they absolutely don't exist. So, so you take impermanence, and it's 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 permanent. <laughs> you know. And it's amazing thing what happens when you can work with someone in a way that lets them start to see that there is a place in their own body, or there is a part of your breathing that you can trust. Like when I work with kids, I always say, your breath is your best friend. It's always loyal. It's never going to abandon you. And, and when it does, don't worry about it. <laughs> um, so, uh, I, again, the benefit of mindfulness practice for the schizoid personality is the cultivation of a very deep sense of security. And the security, I think, has to happen simultaneously in one's inner life and in one's relationships. So uh, the, the way that people can heal in the schizoid frame uh, is to have a really close relationship with a meditation teacher who has a solid enough boundary that they can that as they're trusting themselves more the trust is being held in a wider container that also uh, isn't damaging okay the last category um, see isn't this more interesting than the four Schools of philosophy in ninth century India. We'll do that in two weeks. Uh, is depression. For the depressed person, emptiness uh, or their understanding of emptiness or hearing about the Buddhist idea of emptiness gets experienced as just one inch beyond loneliness. Emptiness is experienced and conceived as an internal void (coughs) with nothing on the inside. It also dovetails with a sense of deep unworthiness. Here is what Nancy McWilliams says. There is no doubt what clinical depression looks like. Many of us have had the bad luck to have suffered one. The un- oh, I just want to say something here, is that whenever therapists talk about depression, 
their tone changes and they talk to you, the reader, because uh, it's unbelievable what the statistics are around therapists and depression because most therapists are depressed. And most therapists came into becoming therapists because of their own depression. So here's a good example of her, her tone is totally different in this chapter. Many of us have had the bad luck. That's all of us. The unremitting sadness, lack of energy, anhedonia. Anhedonia is um, the inability to enjoy pleasure. And vegetative disturbance, which is a fancy way of not eating. Um, or sleeping, or self-regulating, are unmistakable. This part's great. Freud was the first writer to compare and contrast depressive conditions with normal mourning. Not a normal mourning. (laughs) The process of mourning. (laughs) He observed that the significant difference between the two states is that in ordinary grief reactions, the external world is experienced as diminished in an important way. So when you're mourning in grief, the external world feels like it's changed. Obviously, someone has died. Someone is not there. In depressive conditions, what feels lost or damaged is a part of oneself. In some ways, then, depression is the opposite of mourning. People who grieve normally do not get depressed, even though they are pervasively sad during the period that follows bereavement or loss. Given the intended audience of this book, the phrase, those of us, may be particularly opposite, since if professional impressions are trusted, a substantial proportion of psychotherapists are characterologically depressive. I just wanted to read that part. Because we naturally empathize with sadness, we understand wounds to self-esteem, we seek closeness and resist loss, and we ascribe our therapeutic success to our patient's effort and our failures to our personal limitations. Uh, Also, just a few side notes. Depression really runs in families. Um... Depression is characterized by a deep inner sense of hate, which in the olden days used to be called sadism. Um, And lastly, people who are depressed don't get angry. Uh, People who are depressed... uh, Depression used to be characterized as internalized anger or really repressed anger. But people who are depressed, when it's time for them to feel angry, instead of feeling anger, they feel guilt. Because it's their it's their it's their their fault. The author William Goldman once quipped to an interviewer, "When I'm accused of a crime I didn't commit, I wonder why I have forgotten it." <laughs> Unless they are so disturbed that they cannot function normally, most depressive people are very easy to like and admire because they aim hatred and criticism inward rather than outward. They are usually generous 
sensitive and compassionate to a fault. Because they give others the benefit of any doubt and they strive to preserve relationships at any cost, they are natural appreciators of therapy. Depressive people love therapists. What can I say? The cure for depression in terms of meditative practice is to use practice in a way where you can really contact the good. In Mahayana Buddhism, this is called Buddha nature. That at the bottom, you are really good. The difficulty in doing that, as I spoke about with narcissism, is that we're in a culture that favors the negative. Why is it that all of us in our psyche, in this room, have such an easier time going down the old roads of thinking that are negative? Why is that? Why are we culturally doing this in our brains? So meditation works against that. Because meditation shows you that at the bottom, you're not good or bad. And the experience of that is good. (laughs) Also, the therapeutic value of meditation for somebody who's depressed is that it teaches you how to open to a much bigger range of feeling. Because one characteristic of someone who is depressed is they don't feel anything. And that's why... Therapists know that when you're working with someone who's depressed and they actually start really making contact with feeling, that the depression's moving. But sometimes depression has no feeling, but a lot of ruminating. The last thing I think that's really important about meditation practice, and also please bear with me, I wrote this in two days. And I'm sure all this can be expanded and will be expanded in in more detail. But I've always wanted to think about this. So maybe some things I might say might be sloppy or really overstated or grandiose or schizoid, narcissistic, depressive, or borderline. (laughs) Well, for sure, it's all borderline. But the last thing that I think is really helpful about meditation practice with people who are depressed is contact with the body is bringing that whole ruminating energy into the body. Is your attention span okay? Can we keep going a little bit? Or I just have a few more things I want to say, and then maybe... Thank you. <laughs> I'm just doing this for me, because I've wanted to think about this for so long. Uh, we, we need to better understand how to help serious meditators when they get stuck identifying with their incompleteness, whatever category they fall into, if they fall into any one of those categories, uh, because that's not emptiness. The goal of emptiness as a meditative technique is to examine the fundamental misperception that there is a substantial self, that there is an inherent self. And some people, they get that. They have experiences in meditation practice where they really see it. 
Other people are just meditating in the self-conscious realm with once in a while a few blips outside of it. And the only way they're going to see that is long-term practice. And this is what I'm a proponent of. Long-term practice. There is a danger for all of us because we're all prone to ignoring the way the self is falsely constructed. And the way we ignore it as meditators is resting in tranquil states and not using those tranquil states to actually look closely. That's why earlier we talked about shamatha and vipassana, that you use the calmness of practice to then go looking around. And that's why working with teachers is so important, because teachers can recognize, oh, now there's some calmness? Okay, now let's introduce this. Or, oh, let's not introduce this because there's no calmness. Um, meditation offers a really safe harbor because it reduces stress. And then it's easy just to hang out in the harbor. But that harbor is just a base that we can use to keep exploring. See, And then something happens that many of you know where suddenly you say, oh my God, I, I never really could see that. I mean, I knew that, but I didn't know I could see it like that. So when we recognize our misconceptions, we really start to see how they were influencing us. But we couldn't see it until we got there, and you can't think your way into it. Every year this happens to me, I have to admit. I hit a phase and I think, oh, I can stop practicing now. <laughs> And there is a deep clutching in all of us to do this, I think. Um, Huang Po says it like this. People are afraid to forget their minds. They fear they will fall through the void with nothing to stop their fall. They do not know that the void is not really a void. It's the realm of the real Dharma. <coughs> That's the realm of the real Dharma. Oh, I have a lot more pages. <laughs> There's a whole section on Lacan. Here's what Jacques Lacan says about the ideal ego from 1966. The infant assumes an image creating the mental permanence of I. That's his definition of the ideal ego. So the infant assumes there's an image creating a mental permanence of itself, so a representation. This form situates the agency of the ego in a fictional direction, creating the illusion of autonomy. So it situates the ego in a direction that then builds itself as fiction, creating this illusion that the ego is autonomous. So the key to long-term practice is um, to see the fiction of the ego. But we all have to do it in a way that's supportive to us, in a way where sometimes we need tremendous <coughs> hand-holding in practice. 
And also, sometimes we need to know when it's too much. And also, and I'm going to say this because I know most of you in the room, sometimes we really need to be pushed. And we need to let ourselves be students and let ourselves be pushed a little bit. Because we might be just in the harbor, coasting along. Uh, If you have a good balance of emptiness and compassion, these two wings, you can go much further than you think. They're two wings, after all. And the way most people that I meet in our Sangha get stuck is dissociating parts of themselves. This part is not wholesome. Compartmentalizing. So, I'm going to stop here. <laughs> so, th- thank you for letting me, you know, go go through this. I know it's not exactly what Shanti Deva said, but I mean, Shanti Deva couldn't possibly think that us barbarians were studying his text, you know. <laughs> so, um, what do you hear? What do you hear in all this? I mean, certainly, some of what you heard tonight must touch a chord for yourself and family members and friends and um, ways we've all been, been stuck. What's that? Diagnosing people. Yeah. Oh, that's why I don't get along with that. Yeah. some common wisdom that says depressive shouldn't meditate because it feeds the rumination. And mm-hmm. So it's interesting to look at it as you know, there's a way to go and a way not to go. Yeah. Like the, that's a really useful frame yeah. for me. Yeah, like if you have a depressive person, you say, okay, today we're going to really work on meta practice, or I'm going to give you these guided meditations about you know, opening to friendliness for other people. It's, there's no way. <laughs> It's just they're not organized at that time for that. Yeah. Who, who knows? Maybe in 50 years, all meditation teachers in North America will have really good manuals and libraries. And of course, the interesting thing, as many of you know, is that some of the leading meditation teachers in on this continent all have training in psychology. Or they're Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> or both. Someone else. Yes. I think it's tricky, though, because... Like I personally know someone in my mm-hmm. and um, I think you see elements of all of those things in sort of a personality disorder. Yeah. 
Yeah. And so it's like how do you how do you work with that and how do you um, like I know um, self medication is like a big thing or people on meds and like yeah. then with meditation or if a meditation teacher doesn't know about all that stuff or the person's um, say doctor. Mm-hmm. So it's like it just seems really messy yeah. to me. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the reasons why when we have retreats, we, as many of you know, we have a very in-depth questionnaire. Mm-hmm. Um, and what meds are you on? But um, nobody is this cat. Nobody is this. Mm-hmm. Nobody is schizophrenic. Mm-hmm. You know? From a Buddhist perspective, schizophrenia arises as a disorder in certain conditions. Like many of us know, if you have friends or yourself has suffered from one of these conditions, that there are certain external factors that aggravate them. Yeah, like, for example, drinking binges or, mm-hmm. or, or separate, a, a breakup. I mean, people are most insane in breakups. You know, the narcissist can be incredibly grandiose. The borderline personality has fallen apart. I mean, we've all seen this, you know. So then certain conditions come together and trigger it. And then it's really helpful to know the signs. And maybe as we all get trained in things like CPR, is that what it's called? We, I always think of the railway whenever I see CPR. <laughs> um, that we should uh, also get trained in recognizing some of these things. So yeah, it's it's problematic and also it's orienting. Yeah. When you said um, uh, recognizing these things, yeah. that struck a chord with me because uh, when I was a kid, um, you have to speak a little louder. Oh, sorry. sorry. Um, what you just said, uh, recognizing things, struck a chord with me yeah. uh, because when I was a kid, um, and and like my dad would come home from work and he was just tired and angry or whatever. That that's yeah. that's what it was, and you just interpreted some of these moods, um, and then I've noticed. I mean, I'm far from a psychologist, but I've noticed in the last couple of decades that this language of um, being stressed, that we're all stressed, mm-hmm. stress is like, it's not just a buzzword anymore, it's just what people are completely accustomed to saying, yeah. Yeah. Um, as is, I'm depressed. So mm-hmm. I can never distinguish where, like, one stops, the other one begins, like, yeah. the boundaries seem to sure. breed, like, who's had a t- hard day, but who's actually depressed. Right. And yeah. Kind of thing. Yeah. Same thing with stress. So I find it just, yeah, like a crazy um, territory. Like, yeah. 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 I mean, yeah, in our culture, anybody who's not making lots of money is depressed. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it, these words are used in such, such grand ways. Uh, and any thoughts about about this and how it relates to me- meditation, like how meditation can help in certain ways? Yes. Um, well, I just feel particularly lucky because I just stumbled in on this topic and I've never seen it before. Okay. <laughs> um, and these are just ideas that I've been sorting with and entertaining yeah. for a really long time. So yeah. although you felt like you were indulging yourself, I felt like incredibly nourished because these are just like things that I was just okay. like, ugh. So I just yeah. felt really, I just felt great that you articulated a lot of things. Yeah. Um, I particularly like how you said 
you talked about make meditation. Mm. And I think that's like a big theme in my life right now that I'm struggling with within the yoga culture. Uh -huh. That a lot of stuff has become like a cultural meme and I have a hard time with it because it's all about like, oh, let's go to yoga classes. And like, I just am getting really lost in that world because I find that it's lost. It's, although there's been, there's like lots of negative drawbacks to guru tradition. Yeah. I find there's also lost its like individuality component. And I'm finding myself getting lost in this sea of this like sweeping generalization of yoga and meditation. So yeah. I thoroughly enjoy how you broke down that for the different types of personalities, how meditation is this wonderful tool and avenue that is not fixed yeah. and can be um, tailored um, for, for each person and really and guided by somebody who is knowledgeable, who is someone who's holding the space of trust. And I just, I'm just noticing that there's a lack of that yeah. in mainstream meditation and yoga yeah. culture. So I just really love coming into a space where that was, but that sentiment that has been really, that I've been feeling for a long time was really yeah. echoed, and I just am appreciative that that was said. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, thank you. I know I appreciate that. Thank you, and and um, it, it just made me think of a story. Do we have time? Uh, I I, talk, I I've been talking. Peter Levitt and I were pen pen pals. He's the Zen teacher who's coming in a couple of weeks. Now we're just phone pals. We we're talking every week. We just all afternoon we're on the phone. It's the craziest thing. Anyways, today he called me. He's like, I just finished a retreat. Thank you so much for sending students. I, I want to tell you something. At the end of the retreat. Oh, he's been, te you know, he's been at this for 40 years. And, you know, when you do a Zen retreat, you're wearing robes and everything. He's like, all these new students came. They were all in their 20s. They were all young women. And at the end of the retreat, some older women in our community said to me, did you notice what the young women were wearing on the retreat? And I said, no, I didn't notice at all. They were wearing this stuff called Lululemon. And Peter said, it's the first time I've ever heard of it. <laughs> What, what, what is this Lululemon? Anyways. So he's like, do you know about this? <laughs> Anyways. Um, they made some comment about underwear lines in the retreat and various things. Anyways, then he said, um, and then at the end of the retreat, all these uh, young yogis who have never really done a serious Zen meditation retreat, said in the sharing circle at the end, that was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. And Peter said, I was so happy when I heard that, that it really went in. Well, that's an, that's a, I liked that. The story really stayed with me all day today. Sometimes, you know, we're all interested in, oh, you know, I have a meditative life, I have a spiritual life. I think all of you know that, uh, about David Beckham's four-foot golden Buddha in his living room. It's a cultural meme, for sure. Did I tell you what Stephen Batchelor said when I told him that? Oh, so, I, so apparently David Beckham has a four-foot golden Buddha. And so Stephen Batchelor said, oh, there's a, there's a temple in Thailand that has a golden statue of David Beckham. <laughs> 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 yes, Larry. 
Well, I can only speak from my own experience, but I've been on a number of retreats with you, and they have been the hardest things I've ever done. Yeah. But I think sitting, sit, once you do it for a period of time, for a length of time, it's, it's like shedding skin. Yeah. It feels like you shed all of these fixed ideas mm-hmm. of yourself, and all of these personality types, it seems to me, are all fixed ways of being. Yeah. So when you sit, it's like um, it's it's just getting back to the natural person and shedding all of these fixed ideas of who you are, yeah. which I think is a healthy thing. Yeah, that's a great that's a great way to say it. I, I will add to just um, from a Gestalt perspective, we um, call these creative adjustments. So they're of course you do. <laughs> yeah. So and they're also not fixed. Yeah. So the problem we have with this culture is that they're they're labels. Like people will come in and say, "I've mm. been diagnosed. I have bipolar." It's like yeah. a label. Yeah. But people are ever changing. Yeah. You know, organisms. Yeah. Where. Just having that label is a fixed identity. Yeah. So they're creative ways of being, and somewhere along the way, uh, something happened in someone's life where they yeah. had to creatively adapt to something, yes. whether it was relationship or environment or all of these factors. Yeah. And these ways of being became fixed. Yeah. And they can become unfixed. Yes. Yeah. So. Thank you. Um, so, so two things just to end. One is, sometimes when we're in the grip of these energies that were talked about tonight, it's really painful. Uh, It is. It's really, really hard. And it's really hard if you have a loved one or a family member or somebody you live with who is also sometimes caught in these patterns. Um, And it's really important you know what they look like and how you can support them. And I hope one day, maybe as a community, we think through in better ways how these practices can reach people when they're in those turbulent states. The second thing I want to say, the last thing I'll say, is that um, meditation retreats and meditation practice is a letting go, letting go, letting go, letting go, letting go. It's a renunciate practice. Not renunciation in the kind of colonial sentiment of renunciation where you give away all your stuff. But renunciation in that you don't hold on to fixed versions of fixed worldviews or fixed self-views. That kind of renunciation. And underneath all that hard work is so much joy. And everyone who's been on a silent retreat with this community knows that sometimes it's really hard. And then, as the last day is coming, there is so much joy, it's like the roof is going to pop off the building. It's amazing. That energy is amazing. So much, so much kindness that comes out of it. So, uh, thank you very much for for, uh, listening to and allowing me to kind of explore something different uh, for this last chapter. Um, sometimes, as Matthew Remsky says, you just have to rewrite the chapter. <laughs> or remix it, sorry. 